Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Hey, we are wrapping up this series in Jonah where we have, um, uh, fun enough, looked at a prophet who God called to leave his place of comfort, to leave where he was, to go and serve um, and go and preach the gospel to people he really didn't want to. Well, we looked at Jonah chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, where we see Jonah, um, God called him to go and preach, Jonah chapter 1, and he said, no, that's okay, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh were the enemies of the Israelite people. He, he decided to run away from the presence of God. Jonah chapter 2 is God pursuing him in discipline and breaking him and bringing him to humility. Eventually, he's thrown overboard amidst a storm. He is swallowed by a really big fish. He repents in Jonah chapter 2. He recognizes his need for mercy. He recognizes God's work in his life. He repents. He's, he just humbles and cries out to God for salvation. Jonah chapter 2 ends with God, uh, the fish spitting him out on water. Jonah chapter 3, what we looked at last week, we see Jonah finally be faithful and obedient to God's command to go and preach um, uh, his message that God had for Jonah to preach to Nineveh. He goes and preaches. He walks into this wicked city, and he gets there, and he preaches, essentially, in 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. He, he, it's not a message of hope. It's solely a message of condemnation. And we recognize in what our passage today that Jonah was, did not want Nineveh to repent. Nineveh did not want, uh, or excuse me, Jonah did not want Nineveh to turn to God because that meant that Nineveh as the enemy of Israel would be blessed. And if the enemy of Israel is blessed, then that might mean destruction for Israel. And so there's a reason why Jonah doesn't want it to happen, but he didn't like being in the belly of the fish. So he was like, hey, discipline, I need to listen. And he calls out to God for mercy, and he's faithful. And he goes and he preaches. We find out that the people do repent. They recognize that God is calling on them, and God's giving this promise that, hey, if you don't repent, or if you continue down the road you're going, destruction is inevitable. They hear that, and they call out to God in humility, and God decides to hold off his wrath and show mercy to them. Then we get to Jonah chapter 4, and I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we will walk through it. If you're with me in Jonah chapter 4, we just say amen. Amen. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this? Is not this what I said when I was yet in the country or in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and redeeming from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat, on the, sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen to the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be made, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Sounds crazy. It's a plant. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, not I, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Two things I want us to just to pay attention to this afternoon. The first is we see self-righteousness admits forgiveness. Self-righteousness admits forgiveness. What, what do we mean by this? I want us to look at Jonah. Jonah is, and we talked about all throughout this series and all throughout our study, that Jonah is actually, the events of Jonah and the events of Nineveh is Jonah is actually a stand-in for the people of Israel, ultimately. Jonah is an individual person, but he's also a picture of the people of Israel. And the overall kind of point that God is making to Israel is that you, Jonah, are my prophet. You are part of my covenant. You know me. You have always been a part of my covenant. Yet, I'm calling to you to repent of your sin. Israel, I'm calling you to repent of your sin. I'm giving the word of God to you, and you ignore me. Yet, your enemies hear my message and repent. And we see an indictment, if you will, or an example of those outside of the covenant of God hear the word of God and are more faithful in worship and in all and in repentance than those who had been a part of God's covenant from the beginning. And we see this idea and this principle that often our um, comfortability or our knowledge of God breeds this kind of uh, comfortableness and complacency. And Jonah just got comfortable. And we see Jonah even in chapter 2 through his sin and through his mercy genuinely recognizes his need for mercy, receives mercy. But then when God shows mercy to someone else, he gets angry. Self-righteousness. Jonah is shown this incredible amount of mercy. He was in the, he was dying. Jonah chapter 2 says that he was down in the depths of Sheol, which is the picture of the sinner in the bottom of the earth. That means he was sinking in the water. He was sure to die. He gets saved by being eaten by a fish. I don't know if that's much of salvation, but his life is spared. And eventually God shows him great mercy and gives him his life back. God showed great mercy mercy. But then there came this moment when God showed that great mercy to someone who Jonah didn't think deserved it. And we see this self-righteousness come over Jonah. Why is this important for us? Is because in chapter 2, we see Jonah show or cry out for mercy for his actions, cry out for mercy for his disobedience, yet we are seeing Jonah 3 and Jonah 4 that his heart is still self-righteous. We see that his heart is still in a place where he goes, I at least to some extent deserve God's mercy because I am of God's people. 
But those over here who are not a part of God's people, who are just as wicked, I guess, in some ways that I am, I got mercy, but they don't deserve mercy. When we even admit mercy ourselves, run into uh, a temptation to almost believe we deserve it because of self-righteousness. We got to get this. We got to recognize that we, even as Christians, understand that we call out to God because we recognize that we cannot, in and of ourselves, save ourselves. We come to a place where we recognize that our sin has caused God's wrath and his judgment to be upon us, but he loved us so much in the same way that he loves Nineveh. He loved us so much that he sent the perfect prophet, Jesus, and the perfect Savior. He was much more than a prophet. He sent the Savior to let us know how much he loved us so that he could show our mercy. But even in us knowing that, if we're not careful, sometimes we can make a distinction. Well, well I, I kind of deserve mercy for whatever reason, but you don't deserve mercy. Jesus gives a parable of this idea of forgiveness where he has multiple this layers of servants where one servant is forgiven of this great uh, debt, but he was unwilling to forgive someone else of a smaller debt. It's this idea that he received forgiveness and he received his debt being paid, but he didn't recognize the reality of that. And he was still self-righteous in his forgiveness and he was unwilling to give this eternal forgiveness onto someone else. A couple of weeks ago, I watched the movie Les Miserables for the first time. I, I'd never seen uh, the play or the musical. I'd listened to it in music class in middle school, something I was forced to do, um, and, and halfway enjoyed it. It's about the only thing I enjoyed about music. I'm not good at music. I, I like listening to beautiful voices like those up on stage seeing over here or whatever, but, but I'm not a music person. But I remember liking Les Miserables, but, I've, but that was over 10 years ago, and then finally a couple weeks ago, I finally rented it and I watched it. And I was overcome, I guess, uh, about, the, about the main character who was in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And you're just like, man, that, that was, it was not necessary for him to be in prison for 19 years. He gets out of prison, but because the fact that he's, a, a, um, because he's a, a convicted felon, if you will, he's not able to find jobs. He's not able to find a place to live. And then finally, uh, this priest shows him this great hospitality and invites him in. And the main character, Jean Valjean, is forced in his sin and even in kind of the desire to provide, he goes and steals all this silver. He, he, does, he makes this argument at the beginning that he's not actually a sinner, that he didn't do these things, but then he goes and does this great sin. He gets caught for it, and he's brought back to the priest, and the priest says, no, actually, he didn't steal it, I gave it to him. Now, he stole it, but the priest is showing forgiveness, and he's saying, in fact, you forgot some of it. And he goes and grabs more silver and he brings it to this main character and he gives it to him. And then the next scene is this main character, Jean Valjean, who is overcome with the mercy that is shown upon him because if that priest could have chosen to say, yeah, he stole it, and he would have spent the rest of his life in great, in great hardship and in prison. But he was overcome with mercy, and that caused him to be the rest of the movie, to be this character who showed great mercy to other people. Jonah was not Jean Valjean. And oftentimes, neither are we. When we study the story of Jonah, I am personally convicted as one who will 
proclaim God's great mercy that is shown to me with my words, but I'm unwilling to proclaim it with forgiveness towards others. Do we see Jonah's sin? Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, chapter 3 ends with God giving great mercy. And Jonah chapter 4 begins, but this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So angry, he goes on to say, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? We talked about in Jonah chapter 1 that one of the reasons Jonah fleed is because he didn't want Nineveh to repent. He knew that God was a merciful God, and if he went and preached to Nineveh, he knew they would repent, and he didn't want them to repent. And he's going, see, God, I told you this would happen, and I didn't want it to happen, so therefore I fleed. So he didn't care about the people. All these things were taking place, and he says, you know what, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than see my enemies shown mercy. And then God brings this plant, and for time's sake, let me just kind of we read it. Let me just narrate. God brings this plant, and it's hot, and Jonah's just sitting outside the city really hoping that God would, you know, like, just bring down his judgment. He was hoping he'd sit there long enough and really actually watch them overthrow him. Maybe they would, maybe they would turn away from God again, and God would bring out his judgment. So he sits there just to wait to see what will happen, and he's hot or whatever, and so we see this plant come up and give him shade, and he's so grateful for it. That was, a, I'm sure it was a nice day with the shade, and the next day, the plant dies. And Jonah, once again, is so angry because the plant died, and it's unfair that the plant died, and why would the plant die that he decides, I better die? I don't, I don't get this, but we're seeing this perspective of Jonah that he put all this care into a plant that when the plant was destroyed, it caused something in Jonah. They say, it's better for me to die than to live because of the destruction that came to this plant. And God says to him this, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he says, yes, I do well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said to him, you pity the plant. The plant, you didn't labor for this plant. You didn't make it grow. This plant was nothing to you. You weren't the orchestrator, the creator of this. I'm ad-libbing a little bit, but he's saying you had nothing to do with this plant other than sit under it. But yet you have pity on it. Should not I the creator of Nineveh, those 120,000 people. And he even says at the end, and also much cattle. He cares about all his creation. That if, should he not God take pity on all of them? And second, we saw first self-righteousness admits forgiveness. We see Jonah's self-righteousness admits his own forgiveness. But second, I want us to see God's desire admits sin. I want us to see God's desire not for sin. Let me be clear. But God's desire for his creation to know the gospel be, even admits their sin. He makes this statement at the end. He talks about the people of Nineveh, and he says this, who do not know their right hand from their left, meaning they are ignorant in their sin. They don't have the word of God. Yes, they're in sin, and because of their sin, they're still in condemnation. They're still under the wrath of God because God's a holy God, and he can't ignore sin even if people are ignorant in their sin. But he's saying, shouldn't I have pity on those that I've created 
And how can they know that they are in sin unless someone goes and tells them? And he's telling, he's communicating to Jonah that it is because I love the people of Nineveh, even amidst their great wickedness, that I have sent you to communicate the word of God to them so that they will then know the difference between their left and their right hand, meaning they will no longer be ignorant in their sin. We see God's passion and desire for those who are in sin to hear the message of repentance, to hear the message of God's grace and his mercy and his love for them. So the question, as we look at Jonah overall in Jonah chapter 4, we see a perfect picture of someone who is in God's covenant, part of God's covenant people, who is a prophet, who God would speak to, who God would use mightily. And then we see God over here wanting to show mercy to a wicked enemy of the first person, a wicked enemy, someone who had, was ignorant in their sin, who had done great harm, who had never worshipped Yahweh. And we see God's desire for them, but we see character number one, who has desires that are contrary to God himself. And we see a picture here of someone whose desires did not match God's desires. And the question I have in overall application of not only today's message, but of this series, is what is on your heart? Is it the same as what is on God's heart? Is your desires or what you think God's desires are, are they actually his desires? And the question's got to be asked, well, how do we know what God's desires are? Well, it's right here in this book we call the Bible. And we know that it's God's desires in Matthew 28 that the gospel would go out and we would make disciples of all nations. We know from Matthew chapter 24, 14, that once the gospel is preached to all nations, all people groups, then Christ will return. We know that it's God's desires so that all people groups would hear the gospel. We know that it's God's desires for people who doesn't know their right hand from their left, who have no clue about the goodness and grace of God, even though they're still in sin, have no clue how to be saved from their sin. We know it's God's desires that they would hear the gospel. Let me be honest, but let me be clear. God's desire for you is not, per se, the American dream. God's desire for you, yes, is to pour out his goodness and his blessings on you, and yes, to bless you, but Psalm 67 makes it clear that God has blessed us to be a blessing, that God, its desire for new hope ultimately is to make him famous and to preach the gospel and to go out. God's desire for you is when he saved you was to forgive you of your sins so that you glorify him, but there's no such thing as a saved person who isn't then also a sent person. And we see this picture, and I want to challenge you that I have lived my life, and have, or at least desire to live my life, praying this prayer with a little difference, but, it, but not like this, not going, God, I want this, so would you bless it? But instead, would you just show me what you want? Because I guarantee you're going to bless that. It's not so much, God, what is... What is my plan for my life? And then once I figure that out, would you bless that plan that I have for my life? But instead, would you reveal to me what is the plan that you have? And would you, as I see that and realize that, would I live that out? Jonah was someone who had a plan for God and his word 
through Jonah's means. And he says, you know what, God? My desire really isn't for Nineveh to repent, so I'm just going to ignore you for a second because I don't think that's what's best. But what if what God has for us is this obedience and this faithfulness to make him famous? And here's, here's ultimately the challenge as a pastor and as your friend is a, one of the most common things I do in counseling and in conversations with people is helping them figure out what, I get that, well, let me just say it this way. I get this question a lot. I, I really don't know what God wants me to do in this situation. Or I really don't know what God wants me to do when I grow up type questions. You know, like, you know, like I, I'm in school, but what do I do? I don't really know this is what I want to do. Is this really what God has for me? And there's always a question of God's plan and purpose for your life. And my challenge and my advice is, it's, it's you've you got to start more globally. We got to look at it and go, God has made it very clear, his desires. And I guarantee you that his plan for your life fits within his desires. So the question is, is the desires on your heart the same desires that are on God's heart? To take care of those who are in need, to take care of those who don't have the gospel of Jesus. And there, we can make that list forever long. But the point, as I want us to see in Jonah chapter 4 with Jonah, is Jonah's desires that were in his heart were not the same desires that God had on his heart. And Jonah is a picture of God breaking Jonah and showing Jonah mercy and continuing to peel the layers of the onion away, if you will, to get to the core of Jonah, where God reveals to him that his heart is not for the same things that God has. And the story quickly just ends, and we don't really know how Jonah responds. But, but could I give a challenge that I believe that Jonah got the message? Can I challenge that I believe that Jonah responded to the message? Why? Because we have the book of Jonah. If Jonah wasn't completely humbled to get it, he probably wouldn't have written Jonah and taken it back to his friends in Israel and told about his stupidity. Because there's a whole lot of Jonah making dumb decisions in Jonah. And if I wasn't humbled, I probably wouldn't be going and telling people about this, the mistakes I made unless he got the message. And the message was finally Jonah goes, ultimately, we don't know, but I, I believe Jonah finally goes, I get it. You're right. I showed more pity for something that I have nothing to do with. Why would I not expect you as the creator of the universe to have pity for every single one of the people you created in your image? Do we live our lives in such a way that says that, Jesus, what you desire, I desire. Therefore, I'll show forgiveness. Therefore, I'll preach the gospel. Therefore, there is no one who is undeserving of your mercy, but instead, I will give my life in such a way, no matter your vocation, no matter your profession, I'm not talking about that, but I am talking that your life is lived in such a way that where you are intentionally living to try to see God's desires become a reality in his creation. Would you be a conduit of his mercy and his grace? Amen? As is our custom, the second Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper together. And so, if you're with us today and you, um, you would just say, hey, you know what, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, I wouldn't call myself as someone who Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. If you're here today and that's you, thank you, first of all, for being honest and thank you for um, coming and being with us. We are so glad that you're here. We want this to be a place where you can explore.
explored. You can learn about the Bible. You can learn about who Jesus is. You can learn about what we believe. And we are so grateful that you're here. The Lord's Supper is a tradition that Jesus introduced to us the night before he was crucified for our sins. And it was a tradition that he took, and he basically just, there's two elements, and so let me describe them quickly to you. The first is you're going to see there's a, we use a little cracker, but Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread that was at dinner and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body that is broken for you. The next day he would go and die on the cross, and that's what he was referring to. Then after dinner, he took this cup of wine, which was at the Jewish Passover meal, was because this is where that meal was taking place. It was, it was the cup of redemption that, that represented God's redemption of his people. And he said, this cup of redemption, this cup is my blood that is shed for you. And he was referring to the next day when he would die on the cross and his blood would be shed. And he tells us that anytime we eat this meal, to do it as a way of remembering what he's done for us. And so when we really think about this, we do two thoughts that kind of really come to mind when we remember and we take this meal, is first we look back and remember what he did for us 2,000 years ago when he died for us on the cross. This is a look back of reflection. It's a look back of worship. It's a look back of reminding that God's mercy is so great. And so if you're in here today and you're a Christian and you're getting ready to take this meal together with us, would you just now take a time and reflect and look back and thank him for what he did for us on the cross, what he did for you? Would you take an opportunity and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of any sin that you need to repent of, any sin that you need to confess before you take this meal? Just take a moment and reflect. Scripture tells us not to come to God's, to the table, the Lord's Supper, haphazardly, but to do it respectfully and reverently. This is a big deal. This meal, we don't believe, saves in any way. But we respect it because it points to the one who does save. Just take a moment and look back and reflect and ask God for his grace and his mercy. Holy Spirit, would you show any sin that needs to be confessed to us at this time? Would you reveal in our own hearts that we confess it and turn it unto you? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The first thing, the Lord's death, you proclaim the Lord's death, that's looking back. But then it says, until he comes, that's looking forward. So we proclaim the Lord's death, looking back to what he did for us when he died. But until he comes, that's looking forward. When we take this meal, not only do we look back in worship and reflection and repentance and confession of sin, but we also look forward with hope and thanksgiving. We look forward to this promise that Christ will return. This promise that he will wipe away all our uh, sorrows, that he will wipe away all our sins forever. So he's forgiven us of our sins, but we still wrestle with this sinful nature. But there's a promise one day he's going to take this sin out of my life completely. It'll no longer be a struggle. He'll take my sicknesses away. He'll take my brokenness away. There's a promise and a hope that he returns and he'll make all things right. So we also celebrate greatly as we take this moment together. And so if you're a believer, 
baptized you in the room, whether you're a member of this church or not, we'll invite you to take this meal. So at this time, we'll invite the deacons who will be serving to come on up. And if you would, grab the plates with the crackers. And I want to pray a blessing. And then we'll, they'll pass, and then we'll gather back together, and we'll eat together once everybody has. So let me pray a blessing over the crackers. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness. We look back and we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown us. We thank you for the mercy that you showed Jonah. We thank you for the mercy that you showed Nineveh. We thank you for the mercy that you showed to me, to us, everyone in this room that calls upon you in repentance. We thank you for that mercy. So I bless the bread, the cracker, as we turn to you and surrender to you and remember you, would you just make the cry of our heart that I must decrease so that he may increase. I pray this in Jesus' name.